you know, you learn some things sometimes between the services. You know, first service, you get through it, kind of the break in the middle, you figure some things out. And one of the things I learned after first service was Shane pointed out to me that there is something on top of my head. And, and I told him, I said, well, what that was was yesterday I was working on the truck, I had my head under the hood, and I didn't have my cap on. If you're a bald guy with your head under a hood, bad things can happen, which it did. And, but Shane wanted me to know that because he didn't want me to be self-conscious because this is the live stream service and all you folks at home get a good look at this. So I'd like to thank you for that, Shane. I'm not thinking about it at all, okay? Well, I was starting to work on this sermon a couple weeks ago and trying to decide how to get into what is a, a kind of weighty, difficult topic. And as I was working on it, I was also looking at some news, some of the current headlines, and I came across this headline that to me brings two things together that we're going to talk about. Nord Stream pipelines hit by suspicious leaks in possible sabotage. Russia says it has a right to use nuclear weapons. One of the things you know about warfare is that in any warfare, you have both the overt as well as the covert aspects of war. There are the big frontal assaults, things like the threat of a nuclear weapon. And then there are those things that happen more behind the scenes. It's, it's hard to put your finger on what the enemy is up to, like when your pipeline suddenly springs a bunch of leaks and you don't know where they got started. The overt are the dramatic. It's the devastation and the cruelty of war that is written large. The covert are those things that fly below the radar. It's a little hit here and a little hit there, and yet the cumulative effect of those covert actions can be just as devastating as the frontal assault. When we get to the Bible, the Bible tells us that there is a spiritual conflict that is raging around us. It's a war between righteousness and evil. It's a confrontation between God and Satan. And I suspect that if you were to go out and ask the average person on the street what they think of this idea of spiritual conflict, of uh, Satan as an active opponent to God, uh, you would find that for many of them, it, they would consider that something like reading ancient Greek mythology. That, that talk of a, a real Satan, maybe even a real God, is no more real than to talk about Zeus or Hermes. And, and that that talk of a devil is just some kind of medieval superstition that, despite our best efforts, has managed to creep its way into our modern vocabulary. Uh, many would even recoil at discussing evil as a real moral concept, let alone the existence of an evil spiritual foe. Now, there are others that would think of spiritual warf warfare kind of like maybe we think of World War II. We know there was a great conflict in the past, and it's interesting, it's even sobering to think about what happened in that conflict. But that was then, and this is now, and there isn't a Hitler that is currently threatening our lives. Maybe, for many of us, we don't relegate it to the past. We acknowledge the conflict is ongoing, but when it comes to any kind of personal impact from Satan as a foe, we think of it kind of like the war in the Ukraine. It, it's something that happens over there. And 
it doesn't really affect us. We hear about missionaries who have encountered bizarre spiritual opposition from witch doctors and things like that. But while we know it happens a long ways from us, thanks to our modern progress, we think that we're exempt from it. Others of us, I know, have personal histories that have convinced us that such spiritual conflicts are not just over there or a thing of the past or an outdated metaphor for evil. At some point, some of us have been exposed to the occult. Maybe we have personally dabbled in witchcraft or the occult, or maybe it started with something as deceptively simple as a Ouija board, but it didn't end there. Or we have friends, family members who have gone down some dark paths and the influences of evil powers in their lives have been anything but subtle. And those experiences leave us with a clear sense that there are in fact dangerous spiritual forces that are actively at work here and now. Now my guess is that most of us have probably not had those kinds of overt experiences. But still, we agree with the Bible that Satan is a powerful foe who uses means both overt and covert to oppose God. Now this week in your Rooted series, if you're in a small group that's going through that Rooted curriculum, you're going to be working on a chapter titled, There is an Enemy, uh, which without a doubt is my least favorite chapter in the whole series. Because I would just as soon treat the devil as a metaphor, or a thing of the past, or a remote reality that only happens far, far away. But I've concluded that that kind of wishful thinking is just that. It is wishful thinking, it's not reality. I think there are two extremes, though, that we have to avoid when we think about the work of Satan. Uh, in your reading in the Rooted series this week on day number two, so spoiler alert if you're going through it, but you're going to read this quote from C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. Now, The Screwtape Letters is a fictional work that Lewis did where uh, the two primary characters are an older demon, Uncle Screwtape, and his nephew, Wormwood. And Wormwood is an up-and-coming young demon who's trying to learn how to mess people up, and Uncle Screwtape is there to guide him in the ways of darkness. So the book is a little hard to read because everything is backwards. The good guys are the bad guys, the bad guys are the good guys. But, but Lewis makes some very insightful observations about how spiritual conflict happens. But this comes out of the introduction to that book. Lewis says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both heirs and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So the first error would be to ignore Satan altogether. If Satan is real, then he is dangerous, and to ignore that danger just leaves us vulnerable to deception. The other extreme would be an obsessive concern with Satan. I have known well-meaning Christians who consider it a spiritual attack every time they catch a cold or the car won't start or the photocopier jams. And uh, long ago, I spent a few months selling photocopiers, and I can tell you that photocopiers will jam without any satanic intervention. 
Uh, Pastor Lance sent out an email this last week to all the rooted groups, and uh, he, had a, he had a quote in there. So I'm going to quote Pastor Lance. I think it's good. He says, regarding Satan, we often make two mistakes. First, we minimize his effect on our lives. Second, we maximize his effect on our lives. Now, some of you have perhaps heard of a guy named Neil Anderson. Neil wrote some uh, best-selling Christian books, one called The Bondage Breaker, another one called Victory Over the Darkness. And uh, Neil was one of my professors at Talbot, and I had the opportunity to be his intern for a year and work with him. Uh, Neil has worked a lot in this area of people who have had the overt spiritual attack kind of stuff. People who have been involved in the occult, been involved in witchcraft, have found themselves having some pretty serious issues with demonic powers. And uh, because of that, I was exposed to a number of people who had some very deep and tragic histories of occult involvement. Uh, these were people who had experienced the overt attack of evil. But I've also seen people's lives dramatically freed by the power of Christ. And the change is real. One of the people's stories, if you were to read Neil's book, Victory Over the Darkness, one of the stories he highlights in there is a longtime personal friend of mine. And, and I have seen what God did in her life and the lasting change it has brought and the, the joyful servant of Jesus that she is today. But I also know the dangers that come from an over-preoccupation with such things because it is possible to wrongly see a demon behind every bush. Years ago, I encountered a pastor who was convinced that he could cast out demons for all sorts of things, including the demon of backache. The things that get people's lives out of control are many. Some of them are spiritual. Some of them are physical. Some of them are psychological. And because we are holistic beings, oftentimes all three things are involved. And so I do not want to wrongly attribute every problem a person has to some kind of overt spiritual attack. Not all are directly Satan's doing, but some are. The Bible works from the assumption that there is a real spiritual conflict occurring in our world. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation, there is the presence and the influence of Satan as a strong undercurrent to the action. Genesis 3, we find the serpent appearing, and immediately we hear the voice of a deceiver that is intent to draw people away from God. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. And with that opening lie, and with Eve's buying into it, suddenly they found that their relationships with God and each other were broken and corrupted. Now, when you jump forward to the New Testament, the ministry of Jesus, you'll find Jesus, too, acknowledging Satan's activity. And it begins with Satan's overt temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. We know the story about Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. During his ministry, Jesus cast out demons that afflicted people in some very overt ways. Probably the most dramatic is the story of a 
group of demons who identified themselves under the collective name Legion. Said, our name is Legion for we are many. And these demons had taken control of a man who had lived his days as a raging lunatic, you can imagine. In fact, he had been shunned and pushed away from any semblance of civilization. The only place he could live was in the tombs among the dead. And most of the time he lived out there with his clothes stripped off, running naked. He comes to Jesus and Jesus does something dramatic. Jesus commands the legion to leave and they do. And in doing that, Jesus demonstrated his supreme spiritual authority over the demonic. Not even a legion could stand against him. Bizarrely, in that story, the demons then proceeded to attack a huge herd of pigs, drove the pigs insane, they rushed down the hillside and drowned in the sea. Two things happened as a result of that encounter. The first is the, the crazy man was restored to sanity. The story ends with him sitting quietly, clothed at the feet of Jesus. The second thing is all the locals who saw it were scared to death and asked Jesus if he would please leave as soon as possible. So Jesus knew well Satan's overt attacks. But Jesus also acknowledged Satan's covert activity. In fact, here's a story where Jesus is confronting some of the religious leaders who were opposing him and trying to undermine his ministry. This comes from John 8. He says to them, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, if you would have asked any one of those religious leaders, are you serving Satan? They would have said, are you mad? No, I'm at the zenith of the religious pyramid. I'm the most orthodox of the orthodox. And yet Jesus looked at the greed and the underhandedness in their hearts, men who would eventually concoct a plot to have Jesus crucified, though he was innocent of any wrongdoing. And Jesus says, you may not realize it, but what you're doing is you're playing right into the devil's playbook. Your father is actually the devil. Here's how Peter summarized Jesus' ministry in one of his early sermons. He says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The apostles themselves, in their writings, regularly acknowledge Satan as an active enemy of God's people. John, Peter, Paul, Jude, all have warnings specifically about Satan and his ploys. And they all agree that the follower of Jesus needs to actively work against those schemes, that we are not to be passive. Paul, in Ephesians, give no opportunity to the devil, or again, Stand against the schemes of the devil. To 2 Timothy, escape from the snare of the devil. In James, resist the devil. Be active. Take a stand. Resist. Escape. Don't give opportunity. So what is Satan's goal? Every con man has a goal. What does Satan hope to accomplish with his con? 1 Peter 5.8 be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
So Peter uses the image of a hungry lion that wants to kill and devour his victim. Jesus used the image of a thief, this from John 10. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. When John gets to his vision, to the revelation, he uses a new name for Satan. He calls him Apollyon, which means the destroyer. That is Satan's goal, to destroy, to disrupt, to corrupt all that God has made that is good. The Bible never gives us much, if any, backstory on Satan. Uh, We know he's a created being. He is neither eternal nor equal to God. One day he will be fully defeated. We know he has this intense hatred toward and rebellion against all that is holy, but we don't clearly know why. What we do know is that Satan, at every opportunity, seeks to drive a wedge between God and man and to corrupt whatever is good. Uh, C.S. Lewis again in the screw tape letters. The demon screw tape speaking. Tortured fear and stupid confidence are both desirable states of mind. Satan doesn't care what keeps you off track, whether you live in abject fear of him or whether you ignore him completely and you set yourself up for a fall, he doesn't care as long as you're off track. So how do we avoid becoming a victim? I've been working my way through a massive trilogy on the war in North Africa, Italy, and Western Europe during World War II. Uh, Last time Dan Stevenson was here, he and I both uh, enjoy reading about World War II, and so he left me this monster trilogy. I mean, every book is like this in this thing. Thanks a lot, Dan. I'm only about halfway through book two. But but one of the things you find when you're reading about uh, wars and major conflicts is that armies engage in two primary things. The first is to take territory, and the second is to defend the territory taken. In the first case, taking territory, there is this need to dislodge the enemy from a position where he is in control, dug in, and has staked his claim. In the second case, defending territory, there is an ongoing job of not allowing the enemy to encroach upon the ground that's already been won. Taking territory demands assault. That is the clash of armies. It is the thing that calls for courage. Holding territory demands vigilance. This is where the enemy seeks to be covert, to find those clandestine inroads to weaken defenses. And and this case calls for perseverance. The picture the Bible paints is that of a marauding army that has invaded and laid claim to a patch of God's kingdom, specifically the hearts of people. And the territories that Christ came to reclaim are first and foremost human hearts. This from Luke chapter 4, in the early part of Jesus' ministry. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus looks way back to the prophet Isaiah who said that a Messiah will come to set people free. And Jesus says, I am that one. And the freedom Jesus was talking about wasn't primarily a social or a political freedom. The gospel story begins with the rescue of those who have been blind, in bondage, oppressed. He's talking about a deeper, a more enduring freedom, a freedom of the heart. You can have all of the political, financial, personal freedom in the world and still be a person whose heart is in bondage. And I want to say that if that describes you, if you're sitting here this morning or you're at home and you're watching this and you're saying, my heart feels that sense of bondage, I want you to know that Jesus has the power to set you free. It's the freedom of being truly and fully forgiven by the God who created you and who loves you. It's the freedom from all failures, from any shame of your past. And since we're talking about Satan, I recognize there may be someone listening who feels trapped in some kind of really intense spiritual bondage. It would not shock me in the slightest for some of you to tell me that you have dabbled or plunged into some kind of occultic activity, Wiccan, other. I had a couple of people after the first service come and share with me their stories. And the result has been this sense of spiritual bondage and darkness that seems unbreakable for you. If that's you, I want you to know that Jesus has more power than any evil thing that has ever crossed your path or laid claim to your life. It may be you're going to need someone to come alongside and help you to claim that freedom. And if so, we would be honored to help you with that. Don't believe any voice in your head that tries to tell you that there is no getting free. Sometimes I think Christians find themselves in a situation like Ukraine. You belong to Christ, but the enemy has encroached and has set up some strongholds in areas of your life. There's some aspect where he has gotten control, and because of it, you feel defeated in every part. Let me just name three that are very common strongholds that Satan sets up in people's lives. The first one is sex. Yes, that is true, my friends. The pastor said sex on Sunday morning. We are in a sex-saturated culture. That good and God-given pleasure has been twisted and warped by the enemy to do great harm to so many. There are people who come to base their whole identity in sex. There are men and women 
some of you that are struggling with porn. It has become so entrenched, the rut is worn so deep that you feel powerless to ever resist. Some of you have gotten into sexual relationships outside of marriage, and you know it's wrong, but it seems impossible to break free. Another stronghold, I think, that gets us and we don't even know it, these are the uh, velvet padded handcuffs, is materialism and pleasure. In this culture, I think Satan often uses the lure of things to take us off course. We become consumed by our consumerism. Debt and the continual desire for more shiny things creates this vice-like grip on our souls. Or here's one. Unforgiveness and bitterness. Ephesians 4.26 do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. That word opportunity in Greek literally means a spot. Don't give a spot to the evil one. Don't give him a toehold. Don't give him a place in your life where you can start exercising leverage. I've dealt with a lot of people who felt defeated in their Christian life. And when we dug into it, we found at the root was this issue of bitterness and unforgiveness. And here's the tricky thing to that. The thing that you are having a hard time forgiving, the thing that you're bitter about, is an actual wrong. It's not that you're making it up. It's not that you're making a mountain out of a molehill. Real wrong has happened, which makes you feel very justified in holding on to it and, and nursing it and guarding it. The problem is, Satan will use that unforgiveness, he will use that bitterness to take control. It will become the all-consuming factor in your life if it's not dealt with. Satan loves nothing more than to fan the flame of grievance into a bonfire of bitterness. Defeating those kinds of strongholds often requires reinforcements. It's kind of like Ukraine asking NATO for help to reclaim their land. Finding a mature Christian brother or sister who can come alongside to counsel with you, to pray with you, to help you fight the fight to break the strongholds. Maybe that means you come and talk to one of us as pastors, or you make an appointment with Nancy or Gary Stack as counselors, or you show up for a Wednesday night celebrate recovery meeting. But whatever it is, fight the fight. Break the stronghold. Don't be content to let this thing continue to own a piece of your life that Jesus Christ never meant to belong to the enemy. Taking back what doesn't belong to the enemy is step number one. The second part is standing guard against the enemy and not falling for his schemes. The most pointed scripture in the New Testament related to this need to be on guard is found in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. A final word, this from the New Living Translation. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor 
so that you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you'll still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth, the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you'll be able to to be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert, be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we are living in very contentious times. Anybody notice that? You can get into a fight over just about anything, and not just a small fight. I know families, whole churches, that have been torn apart over face masks. Our political differences have reached such a crescendo that You hear pundits talking regularly about the possibility of civil war. But Paul says that the real problem is not our neighbor's politics or our government's policies or debates over public health. Those things are real, but they aren't where the action really is. Under and behind it are the legions of Apollyon, the destroyer. A spiritual enemy whose only goal is to corrupt and destroy. The real fight to focus on won't be one with bumper stickers or political action committees. The real tools of warfare are tools of the spirit. It's an inner work that we're to be be engaged in. We wrap our minds around the belt of truth instead of pickling our minds in the perspectives of our preferred cable TV pundits. We meditate on God's word. We wrap it around. We let it shape our worldview. We dress ourselves in the armor of righteousness, which is not self-righteousness. That's the phony idea that I'm better than other people. But genuine righteousness, which is a heart that is committed to living in a way that honors God and seeks to do right for others. And we put on some cool shoes. In Paul's metaphor, he talks about putting on the gospel of peace on our feet. What is it that carries you into battle? When you run up against conflict, debate, how do you approach it? People that don't agree with you. Do you show up wearing the hot-footed, hobnail boots of, I've got to be right, and I've got to win? Or do we approach others in peace, speaking and demonstrating to them the good news that God loves them? Paul tells us to grab the shield of faith. Ever deal with a chronic liar? If they're any good, they will get you so confused, you don't know yourself what is up or down. Satan is a master liar. He is good. Given opportunity, he will fill your head full of lies. It's it's where he starts with Eve, right? It sounds pretty innocuous. Has God really said? When you read the story of Christ facing Satan in the wilderness, you find Satan approaching Jesus at his point of greatest physical weakness and playing to what he knew to be Jesus' greatest human longings and even throwing in a few twisted scriptures 
to lure Jesus away from simple obedience to his father. But with each temptation, Jesus quotes scripture back to Satan. That is the belt of truth, the sword of the spirit in action. And then he stands fast in what he knows his father has said. He puts his faith in his father. He holds on to the truth of what his father has said. And that choice becomes his shield. What does that look like for you? Well, God says that because of Jesus, if you are his child, your past is forgiven completely. Satan says someone with a past like yours could never really be fully loved by God. And you know your past. And Satan's lie makes all kinds of sense because you're not sure that you love you knowing what you know about your past. But you also know what your father says. He says that through Jesus, he has removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. And so you have to make a choice. You have to step into the battle. Once again, you have to grab hold of that truth and you raise it high in your mind that this is what is true about my past, that it is forgiven. And with that, you shield yourself from the crippling arrow of accusation that Satan would want to fire at your heart. Here's the thing about armor. Armor is only helpful if you make it a habit of putting it on before the fight. When I was a chaplain at the Sheriff's Department, one of the things they issued me was a ballistic vest, body armor, uh, something that I wore every time I went out doing a ride along with a deputy. Uh, gratefully, I never needed it, but I always wore it. Now, the other thing I took with me was I had my go bag. My go bag had a bunch of different stuff in it that I might need for just in case. And patrol cars are busy places, so that always got put in the trunk. And if I needed it, I knew where it was. I could go get it. Now, on a hot day, I got to tell you, body armor is not comfortable. It, it is hot. And it would have been much more pleasant if I had put the body armor in the go bag with all the other stuff that I just might need sometime in the trunk. But you know how that would have played out. You know, the deputy are out someday, he makes a traffic stop, he gets out of his side, I start to step out of my side, and I see the passenger door open up, and a guy jumps out, he's got a gun. To which I yell at the deputy, could you pop the trunk, because I need to go to my bag. No, you've got to have the armor on before you get into the fight. Now, one of the differences is that the chances I would ever actually need that body armor were actually pretty slim. Most body armor that is worn by most people never gets a dent in it. And because of that, some people treat spiritual preparation the same way. They know the Bible's important. They would agree that developing community with other believers is important. Being in regular fellowship, that's all good. They believe that God hears prayer. Uh, and they've tucked all those wonderful ideas, that armor, into their Christian go bag. And they've put it safely in the trunk. Once a week, they come down to the church and they pop the trunk open to look inside and make sure it's all still there, ready to go. You know, then they close the trunk up and go on with their life because they figure chances are it's never going to happen to me. Now, 
that might statistically be an argument if you're talking about conflict out there in the big world with bad guys. Although I think any officer who's here would tell you that still is a really bad idea. But I'll tell you something about spiritual warfare. Statistically, the odds that you're going to be attacked are 100%. That is a guaranteed event in your life. Some of the hits are going to be self-inflicted. Sometimes the enemy isn't the enemy without, it's the enemy within. Here's from 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, my desires, the desires of the eyes, my eyes, the pride of life, my pride about my life and my accomplishments is not from the Father, but is from the world. Sometimes I am my own worst enemy. The world, what I define as the mutinous kingdom of self. But whether the enemy is without or within, the armor is the same. When it comes to being prepared to meet the enemy, the preparation is something that is dynamic and ongoing. It's not just a, a one-time thing that you did way back when. It's something that we live out day by day. It's one of the reasons I think being in a life group is so important. To be with a group of believers who are meeting regularly to pray for each other, to encourage each other, to hold each other up. So I think the discipline of regular worship together is important. I think Sunday mornings are important that we make that a part of the rhythm and the fabric of our lives as believers. That's why regular Bible study and prayer is important because there is an enemy. And if you don't want to be a victim, then you need to be ready. That means breaking strongholds and daily putting on your spiritual armor. But here's the good news. We already know who wins the war. Colossians 2.15. Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. An important part of being rooted in Christ is being armored to meet the enemy. Amen? Amen.